Friends, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms, where we have conversation on emerging paradigms in our now troubled civilization where existing paradigms are crumbling. The topic of today's episode is around shamanism, indigenous traditions, collective trauma, and the evolution of humanity. Today is a special episode with my friend, Dr. Frank Co-Peters, who is a shaman, a teacher, an energy healer, an intuitive counselor, and the author of several books. We begin our conversation today with an overview of shamanism, and then we talk about the resurgence of indigenous and shamanic traditions happening all over the globe. And we place it in the context of history, where indigenous traditions were disrespected and disenfranchised of their lands and rights. During the conversation, we also stumbled on the insight that the pandemic perhaps is a collective cry for a cosmic purpose for our civilization and age. A big theme that emerged in this conversation was intergenerational trauma that has now surfaced all over the globe, and Frank shares his insights as to how to address it. Another important theme is the role of prophecy and the next steps in evolution of both our living planet and humanity. And in this context, we look at the work of two luminaries, including Pierre de Chardin and Sri Aurobindo. At the end, Frank shares a story of his near-death experience at the age of four, and I also talked to Frank about his latest book, Unity in All That Is Enlightened Warriorship Under the Guidance of 13 Masters. So I hope that you will tune into this rich conversation and share what touched you in the comments below. Also, this episode has a glossary of terms and a full transcript for your convenience, which you can check out in the description below. Okay, so before we go forward, I have to put out my lemonade stand and sell you some lemonade. It's still summer after all. So I really love to make these videos as part of my creative expression, but to tell you the truth, it is a lot of work to prepare for these videos and then to edit them and produce them. So if you're enjoying these videos, kindly like the video and subscribe to the channel and share with your friends. And if you're listening to this on iTunes and Spotify, then I would request that you please leave a review for the podcast. Unfortunately, the way YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify and these technologies are designed is that if you like, share, comment, and subscribe to the channel, then the chances that these videos get to a wider audience is much higher. Also, I write articles on the Potential Paradigms website, so if you like, please check it out. Lastly, if you feel generous and want to support my work, please consider making a donation at the Potential Paradigms website via PayPal or Patreon. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart, and now let's turn to this conversation. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms. I'm really excited to have a wonderful guest today, a friend of mine, Frank Co-Peters, who is the director of the Living Light Center, which he started in 1986 in Portland, Oregon. He's the native of Belgium, and currently he is live from Belgium, where he taught at the University of Antwerp to graduate students along the subjects of theory of literature, history of drama, and nonverbal communication. He also started a center where teachers and, teachers and artists came together to develop new forms of energy work. One of his formative teachers was Joska Sus, who was a Hungarian shaman in the Baxa tradition, and he was also a renowned visionary painter. Frank offers intuitive counseling. He's a shaman and a Reiki practitioner and offers shamanic classes and sessions to bring people to access higher realms of consciousness. He has also written a couple of books, including his most recent book, Unity in Everything That Is, Enlightened Warriorship Under 13 Masters, which we will also be talking a little bit about. So welcome, Frank. Thank you. Thank you, Kunal. It's always good to see you and to be with you. It really is. Yes. And uh, maybe just just a little bit of a thing that I, a mistake that I made was that we were 20 minutes into the, the conversation and I realized that I had forgotten to hit the, hit the record button. So this is sort of a take two. And we are warmed up now. We are yes, really we're, we're really warmed up. And so yeah, with, without further ado, as we were talking just just now, 
one of the themes that came up, which I think is really important to share with the audience is this resurgence of shamanic traditions in the world, the honoring of indigenous traditions everywhere, and the, the, the incorporation of shamanic traditions again into the new culture, perhaps, that is taking birth. So maybe before we dive into that, because we, we have the privilege of having you, someone who has done shamanic work for such a long period of time, that from my understanding, the shamanic traditions are earth-based traditions where the elements are honored, the earth is honored as a living presence, as a living being, and what it brings is the, the intuition to connect with these elements and other beings and to live in harmony. But may, maybe you could once again tell us what, what to you is shamanism and how, how you see it. Yeah, well, your definition certainly is a, is a very accurate one. My teacher very specifically felt that the job or the ability of the shaman was to uplift a person's consciousness and also to bring down in the earth atmosphere frequencies that would be very helpful on, on many levels, on the physical level for healing, but on the spiritual level also for, for transformation and to make people more aware of what they really are instead of what they think they are. And it's true that he came from a very specific tradition, the, the, as you mentioned, the tradition of the Bakshi. But he also became, a, he came from Hungary, which at the time when he was born was still a very, very active shamanic culture. He once showed me a book in Hungarian, so I, I couldn't read it, but it was from the 1920s and it had maybe a dozen maps in it of the various types of shamanism that were being practiced. In certain regions, it was more plant medicine. In others, crystals were used. Then there was quite a few where the drumming played a, a big role, which was also the case of my teacher, and the chanting, the voicing, channeling spirit in a certain way. Also, places where shamans were more like able to to prophesy is that the right word to foresee what was going to happen in the culture perhaps another word is also divination i don't know if that's yeah div yeah exactly divination that's the right word yes yes because his teacher his name was tamas bakshi he in the so when the second world war was taking place he could divine whether a soldier that had left and his family wanted to know if he was still alive or not, uh, or where he was at the moment. He could he could figure that out, which is kind of a not an a, an easy gift to have and an, and a, a gift with a lot of responsibility. But he started to initiate the young boy Yoshka at the age of five. So, and he was not the only boy who was in training with him. And those trainings were quite impressive, being taken to the churchyard to see if the person who was buried there recently was already gone to other realms or was still kind of hovering. I mean, and then 
at nine years old, Yoshka had his first major initiation, you could say, into a cosmic reality. So his teacher was also a blacksmith and he sold horses. So he took Yoshka with him to the fair, and two horses in front and Yoshka in the back early in the morning, sleepy, and then the rhythmic movement of the heart. And then his teacher is chanting, vocalizing. And all of a sudden, Yoshka, as, as this young kid of nine, is out of his body, and he's in the cosmos. He sees the structure of the Milky Way. And he was already a special boy, which is the reason why Thomas was training him. But now he has a vision that is so unusual, and it sets him apart from the kids of his age. And so today it would be potentially a very different story, but his, his grandparents were concerned about him, and he was sent to Budapest, where he was psychoanalyzed by, his name is Ferenzi. Ferenzi was a student of Freud and the only Hungarian that was part of the circle of Karl. And so they, they, Ferenczi did all kinds of what they did at the time, assessments. And after, after a week of that, he wrote a very elaborate re report for the school and for the parents. And the essence of it was, this boy has high intelligence, high intelligence. He's very sensitive. He has extrasensory perception. My advice is give him some discipline, but give him as much space as possible. That will be the best for him. And I know that he was very proud of that report. And he had a little statue sitting on his desk of Ferenczi. At the time, I had no idea who Ferenczi was. But of course, I have researched it later. And, and, and also, you see kind of destiny at work which is one of the shamanic insights that, and maybe destiny is not, not exactly the right word, but it was certainly Joschka's destiny to come to the West, in this case to the Netherlands and then to Belgium, to work there as a shaman after the Second World War, privately mostly, private sessions with people where he was living, and then later some workshops, but not a whole lot. And so now he has he passed in 2008 at the age of, I think, 87, I believe, or 86. But I meet so many people today, 15 years after his death, if I, if I am right in my math, who were deeply, deeply influenced by him, even the ones who only had one session. And so I had the great luxury of, of studying with him for many, many years. And so he saw himself as he honored his own tradition, of course, and his teacher, whom he never saw after the, the First World War. So he was kind of alone. But his first initiation was at nine. Big initiation was when he was working as a a worker in the mine, in the Belgian coal mines, which was the only way in those days that a refugee would eventually get the Belgian citizenship. They would have to sign up for the coal mines because the Belgians no longer wanted to do that. 
it's the whole story, right, of of refugees and and all of that. Yeah, and and then it goes on, right? It goes on and on. The Ukrainian people today, we we, we meet Kathy and my wife and I, who are living in Belgium now. We meet a lot of Ukrainian people. Some of them, mostly women, of course. Some of them are highly educated and and have all kinds of gifts. So it's a strange thing how many events in the world have repercussions for other places in the world. And as you mentioned, I think in the beginning, that shamanism has a resurgence, right? And respect also for the native people. And of course, there is a whole issue of cultural appropriation also, right? Some some shamans feel, and, and rightly so, that at times their gifts are now being used not that they're finally being respected and but for commercial reasons or whatever. But Yoshka himself, he felt that he was part of the, the Aquarian age and that his mission was to transmit as much as he could from his way of being, really, because he was a very obviously a very striking, present person. He could be fully present, certainly when he was doing his work. And as many shamans, one of the aspects was that he would go in, in trance when he's working in a bit of a heightened state of consciousness. And from that place, he, he could see your aura and especially orally, the sound. He could, he could hear a person's sound body. And you can imagine me as a young, young person in my 20s. I mean, I was tremendously interested, but I had no idea how that would even work. And I knew that he was not lying. My, my teacher was not a liar, but it was so outrageous in a way that that would even be possible. But today there are active shamans all over the world from many, many different traditions. And then, of course, many people who, like me, you know, I, I wasn't trained as a shaman at a young age. I wasn't, but I was very sensitive, always have been. And, and also I had like a near-death experience at four, which I think was a maybe an, sort of an initiation for me. So it's possible that has become very obvious now, not to be born within a shamanic culture, but still have the archetype of the shaman strongly in you. And I would say that, Part of that archetype is to have a deep longing to receive the wisdom of nature and to make sure that the imbalance which we see around us today in the, in the biosphere, in the water is becoming such an issue on the planet. And of course, the climate change that we are currently in and how to deal with that, it is such a, an issue for the scientists, obviously, but also on a grassroots level, what can every person on the planet do to contribute to living more in, in harmony and, and to be more happy? Not that in shamanic cultures everybody was happy necessarily, but there was still a sense of a strong sense of community and being responsible for the community. So yeah, I'm 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 happy that having been with, with my shaman who was always saying, 
you will see, you will see, there will come a time, you will, you will experience that when shamanism is well known. And uh, you will think of me, he would say, you will think of me. And it's true. I, I think of my teacher as I'm speaking about him with you. I'm, I'm thinking of him. That some of those outrageous statements, I think, God, I was so fortunate to be in his presence because there was not that many people in his group sessions. It was a small, it was in the living room of somebody where we would gather. And most of us, we would keep this quiet because of possible judgment of people, of course, who had no idea what shamanism was. I mean, neither did we really, but who would still have some ideas about it, about it being irrational or maybe heathen or whatever people's ideas about it. Because historically, that's one of the interesting phenomena, I think. It's probably the oldest spiritual practice that is documented all the way down to the earliest documents that we have, historical, or the cave paintings. Some of the cave paintings that are incredibly beautiful and respectful of the animal spirits, they go back about 38,000 years. I mean, that's a lot. That's almost unimaginable. Egypt, I don't know, is maybe, I don't know, 3000 BC, something like that. This is 38,000 years ago. So, Shamanism has been, in more recent history, certainly persecuted by governments for political reasons, like in, in the East Bloc, land like Hungary, where Yoshka was from. That's why he didn't go back to Hungary after the war. Shamans were repressed, were, they could not practice, it was considered dangerous. And also for religious reasons, as the, the missionaries in, in, in those cultures, they would forbid those rituals because they were not in alignment with what they believed was religious. So yeah, it's a, this is a new era where a lot of people, young people also are very interested to find out something about shamanism. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for so much for just as you were describing the, the whole description seems very magical to me. And there are quite, quite a few themes here. But two themes that stuck out was one, as I was doing some background research before that, for our chat about your teacher, some of the things you highlighted, like his, that Hungary had 150 clans and one of those clans was actually a shamanic clan. So that perhaps maybe that's the template of all indigenous cultures, but that really stuck out to me that they actually had a tribe or a clan that specifically generationally did the work of shamans. And your teacher was part of that clan, which kind of makes sense that he has these incredible gifts at a very young age. And also that he spent during the World War, after the World War, as you said, as a refugee, he spent a lot of time in coal mines. And that also stuck out to me because I know that in certain spiritual traditions, like the Buddhist traditions, there is this encounter with the dark in these dark retreats where for prolonged periods of time, you are in the dark. and in their own way, and I think we, we perhaps will be touching on this again, the idea of a vision quest. Part of the reason you expose yourself to dark for prolonged periods of time is to also have these visionary states. But yeah, I, I was just, it made me really think of his, his story of the supernatural elements of some of the powerful experiences 
that he had of his lineage and being exposed to dark. I don't know how long he worked in those coal mines. Five years. Five years. Wow. Yeah. And of course, he got stuff in his lungs, which he suffered from for a long, long time, actually for the rest of his life. But it did not inhibit him in, in any way because like the sounds he was making, the, the volume of, of air that came out of his lungs during his sessions. And he didn't really complain about it either. He took it as he had seen also terrible. Th he was put in a, in a work camp by the Germans where many, many of his colleagues died. And already then there was kind of a belief that if you stayed close to Yoshka, you would be protected. And of course, we don't know if that's true or not, but the magic you were referring to, he certainly led a challenging life, but also an Im amazingly productive life, also as a visionary painter, because he was mostly self-taught. He had an amazing library in his home and an amazing collection of spiritual objects. And he was recognized by many as a, as a sound keeper. Also, when other shamans met him, they would immediately recognize him as a, as a very respected elder. But so the darkness, indeed, it, that's part of shamanism too. Not to have your head in the sand, but recognize that the forces of dark do exist. They're always present. And they can be transformed almost alchemically into a force that can be channeled in a, in a good direction. And because one of the, the most traditional aspects of the shamanic work is a soul retrieval, as it's called. So the feeling is that when somebody has experienced some kind of trauma, which of course most people have on some level, but certainly if it's an intense trauma, that there is almost a piece of the initial energetic body that gets separated. Like a, somebody who has been, say, in the war, like in Vietnam, many, many people came back and they had lost their soul, so to speak, because they did unspeakable acts. They had to do them. They were, they were, and then when they came back, they were also not really honored as heroes because many people, for a very good reason, were so angry about what happened in the Vietnam War. And so those who were not given treatment for that trauma, they, Many committed suicide, many became, led very, very unhappy lives. And what's been more and more recognized today is that there is a lot of intergenerational trauma. The trauma of, of the, at least the two previous generations, somehow by osmosis, the third generation still carries that. And so what's interesting when the work is around the darkness of that trauma, identifying it, giving it a place, and allowing people to feel the feelings that were impressed after the trauma happened, that very deep healing happens sometimes immediately. And of course, most, time, most of the time it takes many sessions for a person to recover, but complete recovery is possible. That's an amazing thing about the human potential. Many, many things can heal if given 
the right approach and that it's almost like a privilege for the shaman to be in a position where the client is open enough to work with the shaman because then the shaman gets an opportunity to to enlist the, these forces and healing is never just for the client it's all always also for the practitioner and so that's a very wholesome model that you're not separated from the person you're working with which of course in modern medicine which i understand cannot be the case if the the doctor is always identified with the clients and many of the clients die I and mean, it's just too much to bear but then the the shaman works in in unity with with all that is that's that's the whole idea and and receives extra energy as the work is being done yeah i'm going a bit of no 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 this is this is great i mean it's there are tremendously deep themes here and i guess we could we could take it in so many directions but one thing that stuck out to me two themes that come one was as you were mentioning about this event in your teacher's life when he was psychoanalyzed mm-hmm. i was thinking that you what you shared about the report was different than what i would expect from perhaps contemporary psychoanalysis because right. it, it seems perhaps my guess is that we were still in a kind of an age where this bifurcation into just rationality had not perhaps fully taken place. So when the psychoanalyst says that he or your child has extra sensory perception and one of the best things would be to give him space, that almost seems counterintuitive to what you, you might get some pills of some drug, Adderall or something. Right. But yeah, yeah, that, that connects with this theme of why the, shamanic traditions which seem to be present in each and every indigenous culture. I come from India, India and Pakistan area, and we have regions that still practice certain forms of shamanism. We have in Tibet, there is the Bon tradition, which is the Bon shamanism, which actually maybe we should talk about that at some point because it got very nicely integrated with Buddhism, which is a very unique, perhaps a unique case study. But yeah, so I, I feel like that it's only recently, perhaps in the last few hundred years, where rationality took such a dominant stage as the only capability humans have. And that somehow is deeply interconnected with colonialism, materialism as the outcrop. And now in the form of capitalism, has gone out of control. But I feel like it stems through this emphasis that the only thing that exists for humans to somehow achieve godhood would be would be rationality. And, and shamanism seems to bring back our other gifts like intuition and connecting with other living entities. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, the mind in itself is an amazing thing that, that the human species has a mind and that that mind can be developed is yeah is a miracle really but the mind also as you point out has been almost taking over there are very few few humans all over the world but and but certainly in the west who cannot ever stop thinking in some form or another not even in the in the dream state it just goes on and on and on the inner voices 
And a lot of the inner voices are experienced as torment, as judgmental voices. You're not good enough. You're not successful enough. The world is, I mean, you, you, it's obvious what I'm talking about, right? And so a shaman works from a place of stillness, really, where energy is gathered just to be present with whatever the issue, if, if there is an issue to work, to be worked on, to just become very still and observant and, and try to read the, the symptoms and wait. A doctor today, a medical doctor, most, they have like 15 minutes, right, to do an intake and they, they put the stuff on the computer. I mean, and a good doctor will still have rapport with the client, obviously, but a shaman often has the, the support of the whole tribe with them. The tribe counts on the fact that if one person is in disharmony, that's not so good for the tribe. And of course, those days, I mean, are gone also. But the, there are lessons to be learned there for this culture because it is not rational to, to in this day and age, to still have wars going on. It's crazy. It's bad for everybody. There is not a winner there. I mean, there really isn't. It's impossible to win a war. I mean, maybe there was a difference with the Second World War because that was a big ideological battle. And of course, we, we I say we, I count myself in it, had a kind of a naivete after that war, we will never see white supremacy again, right, of anti-Semitism or whatever. But obviously, that's not the case. And so the... I think the value of shamanism is mostly a deep respect for everything that lives, recognizing that spirit, if you want to make a division, because sometimes we have to just for the sake of dialogue, but spirit is more interesting, more pervasive than matter. Not that there is something wrong with matter, right? Because the shaman works also with the body, which is matter also, right? And the imprints that trauma has planted in there, they're there on a cellular level. They're there. And so they can be released. So again, that's the hopeful part. When we have an insight of how to work with a person who is in disharmony, then it's possible that the cause of the issue is found. And the shaman's job is often to intuit in his or her approach what is really going on here. Because the shaman initially will not know either. I mean, we'll listen to the client and pay a lot of attention to the body language, also to the words that are being used. But then we'll invoke spiritual presence. The presence of the, the client, of course, has, has also spirit essence, right, and has wisdom inside that's already brought him or her to the shaman, right, that that's already part of the healing in a way, the potential that in, in today it's still an alternative route when you go visit the shaman and you have to find the shaman in the first place, right, so that can be part of the healing, that you already see the way I have been living, there's an issue now, I have tried regular medicine because it's never a bad idea, of course, to go to a regular doctor. They're quite good with 
assessing what the problem is medically, right? Not always, but but then for the more unconscious stuff, that's when you go visit the shaman, right? And you're right. So even today, like psychiatry often has become mostly medicine-based, right? Or medical treatment is often the... And again, I'm not saying there is not a place for that because we have to also be practical. Not everybody has the time or the money to go into an extensive period of inner soul searching, right? But again, coming back to to the shaman and the extensive way that the ra- the purely so-called rational mind, but when we are honest, that mind is not very rational at all. I mean, I've worked in academia long enough to know that the ego mind is can be very, very strong. It's not always about truth. It's about whether you publish enough or whether you get the, the, the tenureship and all that. And, and that being said, there are many great scientists. But, but the, the mind that is not connected to spirit can be a very, very dangerous mind. Because humans are not, in general, at that level to have respect for the inventions that are coming through science. Science has amazing inventions. If they were used in the right way, already most of the problems in the current world would be solved. Yes. You agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, this to me, all this stuff is kind of mind-blowing. I could, I could just go on hours and hours, but... I think what you just said about scientists, great, great scientists, like if you take one of the apostles, let's say Albert Einstein, they are not just using the rationality in the limited way, perhaps we were talking about. They have immense intuition. And as you were saying, shamans and indigenous cultures have always honored dreams and the messages, the communications that are coming from the deeper psyche, so to speak. And a lot of great scientists are very much in tune with that. They're in tune with music. As you were mentioning, your own teacher, very gifted in the sound body. So I, I, another thing is, as you were highlighting that rationality, I think often is tied with our identity. I think I heard this from a spiritual teacher um, that whatever your identity is, if it's a limited identity, then your rationality will operate in that circle. But if that identity is expanded, then the rationality can also operate in that expansive identity. But at the same time, I think, and this part and parcel of every spiritual tradition is you discover the limitations of your rationality and that is somehow supra-rational. Right, right. I mean, so many themes here, but you were talking about soul retrieval and trauma. And I think that that also highlights a current in our time where all of a sudden, at least in the past few years, I've noticed that trauma has become a buzzword in the collective. It's part of pop culture now. Yes. And and not that it wasn't before, but it wasn't in the mainstream. It was maybe even in the, and I would like to check with you on this, even in the contemporary, more Western spiritual traditions and non-duality and such, trauma was like a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Perhaps still is. But it's, it's, in most cases, it's not addressed or it does not need to be addressed. And Perhaps shamanism has come again to the surface, as we were talking about the surgeons, because it has the tools 
to address that. So I threw you a few balls here. If that triggers something, please take it. Out. Yeah, yeah. Those are good balls. Those are really good balls. Yeah, because it's because I myself, as as you, I'm, I love non-dualism. I love Advaita. There is so much wisdom there. Going, going also way back, right, way back to the Upanishads and so on and so on. But the way that spiritual traditions evolve, of course, have their own blind spots, obviously. And and I understand that you cannot do everything with within a certain discipline. But I think the the blind spot of, of non-dualism can be, oh, well, what I really am is spirit essence, so I, I'm not going to work on this trauma. Well, good luck. Good luck. It's always going to have a force of its own, and it's going to have repercussions in, in your daily life. Yes. And maybe for the viewers, Frank, if you could just uh, describe what non-duality, maybe in, in other terms, because ultimately all spiritual traditions are non-dual, but... If somebody does right, yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point because certainly shamanism is is because shamanism feels that there is one spirit. They often call it great spirit or one kantanka in the in the Lakota Sioux tradition, but also that that there is spirit in everything in a blade of grass, in in a tree for sure, in a rock, in a mountain, in a stream somewhere, and then there is the sacred places on the planet. Right, where people would love to go, like in India, right, Arunach, in the south of India, where yogis have gathered forever. So that that's a view of shamanism that the sacred is everywhere and sometimes is very concentrated in certain places, but that every single being is connected to source somehow. That there is no difference on, on that level. So I think that's a very, very deep insight. And as you mentioned, of all philosophical, well, maybe not philosophical, but spiritual traditions, at the, at the core of it, everything is one and there is no hierarchy, really. And so a, a good non-dual teacher will try to remind people of that truth, that we are one and that what we really, really are is is not just the body, of course, is, is, you could say, consciousness or awareness. That's a very, very deep, deep insight. And when a person is in, in a retreat like that, certainly for me that has happened many, many times, or actually in any meditation retreat, the silliness of the mind constructs at some point are so obvious. And really at that point, there are no no issues the universe is as it is and it's it's amazingly beautiful actually in the world there is a lot of suffering that is also felt and seen but it's also seen that it it shouldn't be like that or it doesn't have to be like that that's a better way of putting it it could be different it's a choice that's in front of humanity if humanity has collectively a different route to go so be it, right? Yeah. But to, but to come back a bit to the approach then, I believe that in order to be effective, the body also needs to be part and parcel of any approach. 
And of course, in certain, in certain non-dual traditions, they do have yoga, non-dual yoga, and all of that, which is mostly the yoga of space, right? Or, or becoming one with the cosmos, right? That kind of yoga. Not the yoga, which is more body-based in the sense of being able to do certain postures in a perfect way. Not like that. Again, there is, of course, room for that. And so in shamanism, through through the sound, through the drumming, through the sometimes the laying on of hands or, or the finding where the obstructions are, and also where the what often happens in shamanic sessions is that something very unusual comes out of the patient or the client. They they start to sob and they have no idea why. They're touched somewhere in the body and and then a memory sometimes comes up, completely suppressed for most of their life, which is an amazing human ability when you think of it, that something very, very dreadful to you happened. Of course, you, when you're one on, or two, it makes sense. But when you're, say, 13, and you have no memory of it whatsoever, and you're already 60, but you feel that something is not quite right, and nothing so far has given you any relief from it, and then you end up in a, in a session where you feel safe enough to let go. And you enter in a space where all of a sudden, and, and this can be very tough, of course, but you kind of fall apart. Because the identity you assumed to have had, or the biography, the, what has been built up as your identity, all of a sudden is shattered. And then what? You know, who am I without the trauma? What does it mean? So that is something that very rarely can happen in just meditative sessions. Meditative sessions, the still point is possible, where the mind temporarily stops, which, of course, is a great blessing when that happens. Or even if the mind chatter lessens a bit, it's already, wow, it's so great. And then the longing to go back in that space when you enter again in the noise of the world yeah, I think that's one of the gifts that shamanism has to offer. It honors the, the wisdom, the deep wisdom that is in the body, also of a traumatized body. There, there is a lot of wisdom there that, that has never gone away. But the direct contact with the healthy body has often been lost, and certainly with the healthy mind. Today's minds are overheated right, overactive. And I mean, I would include myself in that in spite of all my practices, which I'm grateful for. But on occasion, my my mind is too active, right? Driving driving now in Belgium amongst all of these trucks on the highways and the speed and all that. I'm happy when I'm home. And then and then very quickly I relax. So so that's certainly something that I feel I have achieved a little bit is to go back to still point. Yes. But yes, this this has to be addressed if humanity wants to take its next leap, which is necessary. It's really it's it's felt by almost everybody that I know that the life as we know it, the structures as we know it, the violation really of nature, still the in, in spite of everything, the dominance of patriarchy, where the feminine is not fully honored, 
the still today the disrespect of native cultures, the suppression of native cultures, the looking down on it as if those people, not that there are that many native cultures left because many have been eradicated, but the wisdom of those cultures is still available. And quite a few elders from those cultures are have made themselves available in the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. And they come, they come forward. Shamans that have not been ever part of the mainstream world have come out. Sometimes with prophecies that are a bit doom and gloom, but certainly with wake-up calls. Wake up humanity. The time has come. The time has come. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much, Frank. So we were talking about the connection of trauma mm-hmm. and shamanism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And also in the context of contemporary, more westernized spirituality. And I just wanted to maybe check in with you. I think that in a lot of the actual lands where certain spiritual traditions have emerged, there are even the non-dual traditions where we're just talking about what I really am, the great spirit as you refer to, and that that is enough. Usually these traditions are more holistic. They have the non-duality and the monism come dualism is kind of packaged. But it also seems that here in the West, we just kind of just have the dominance of the non-duality, which sometimes I think has a colonial aspect to that where certain aspects of those very traditions have been kind of sort of taken a little out of the context. Does that resonate with you or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes and no. I'm not really in a position to evaluate all the... I mean, what you're saying makes sense. Certainly, colonialism, the the that in itself, right, has created so much trauma and has not been dealt with, you know, it hasn't. So that's the least thing we know. If a person doesn't deal with their trauma, as I mentioned before, it's it's impossible to be really happy. You can be happy at certain occasions, but not in a consistent daily way because the trauma has such a force. That's so interesting, really, when you think about humans, that which has not been healed will come in some form or another to the surface. And that's why Freud really was a, a genius on that on that level, right? He saw that so clearly. Not saying that everything he saw was, was still holds total validity today, but that basic insight, you can try to suppress it, good luck. It's not going to work. We know that. We know that. And that's a, one of the pitfalls of modern medicine. It does not deal with that at all. And then there was a time that psychiatry, in the time of, of Carl Jung, Jung spent a lot of time with his clients, right? And and so did Freud. And of course, then the shadow side was, certainly with psychoanalysis, that people in New York who could afford it were in session, in psychoanalytic sessions for years and years and years, and it wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. But that's extreme, right? That was very extreme. But... The trauma needs to be honored as the most important healing guide that is available. It should guide the process. 
And in a, in a just society, that would be taken very serious because you see so many people, many people in, in leading functions who, who have not done their work at all. They're immature, they're buffoons, they're just glib talkers, but they have no, no solid foundation as a human being, right? No good can come out of that. It, it's just not right. Because there have been major advances in psychology and anthropology. We know that colonialism needs to be addressed. If it's not addressed, again. So, and so maybe the danger what you are referring to would be that a repackaging of non-dualism is yet again some kind of escapist route rather than going to the depth of what's possible. Yeah, I so coming back to that, what I felt here is, and I think we spoke about this before, that I've kind of in personal journey, I've struggled with that because I had to learn the hard way coming from, as you were saying in many of your examples, that stuff that is not addressed, that we can even be open to wider contexts of reincarnation and so on and so forth. Eventually, it will come to the surface or you will be living a life where your potential is frozen. I like this quote from a spiritual teacher. He said, trauma is frozen potential. Mm, yeah, that's a great quote. That's a great quote. It's, it's by Thomas Hubel. And I like that because that's what I felt, that even though I had had glimpses of the so-called non-dual, so to speak, and I was getting those teachings, my potential was not really being unraveled. And then it in a very shamanic way, it took the form of like illness and chronic, chronic illness. And until I became open to go beyond rationality, as this is one of the themes, I guess, today, to really address the wider harmony of the aliveness of our planet and so many other things that exist. And just as a, it came to me as a reminder, because you just mentioned that in your book, you have spoken of many of your teachers and influences. And maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to speak more about your book. And you speak of Ramana Maharishi, who at least in Advaita Vedanta tradition is, is an apostle, right? You know, everybody considers him as the, the representative of that tradition today. And you also mentioned Arunachala just in this, our conversation. And there's one thing that's often not talked about in Western non-duality circles is the hymns that Ramana Maharishi wrote to, which if you look at in the wider context of the Indian tradition, Devotion and certain elements of shamanism are very dominant. It's not something new, but it's not talked about here. So that very teacher, you have that aspect of him considering Arunachala as that being. And many people have these mystical experiences with that mountain, which again, connecting back to India, the Indian continent, there's the Ganges River, which is, has a spirit. And many people experience that who are not even off that land. And... Then again, there's Mount Kailash and many sacred mountains and regions. So it does seem like that there is kind of a kind of a divorce, that that is a lower path. It's not direct. But now in this era, it seems like we're learning that trauma is not going to get forgotten and it, it needs to be addressed. But I, I just, Arunachala reminded me of that because maybe we're seeing half a picture of Ramana Maharishi. Yeah, I agree. I I was so I visited Arunachala three times, and I must say, the very first time 
it was so astonishing the presence of that mountain and how Kathy and I, we happened to be there at a full moon. And that those two days around the full moon, about a million people descended on it was unbelievable. The the throng the, and almost exclusively from India. They had come in many, many buses and a deep devotion. And most of them were chanting all the time as they were either circle circumambulating Arunachala or going to the top. Young and old and mostly barefoot. And it was a flow of happiness that went through the people that they were able to be there. And then often they would just come briefly into the, the ashram that's there in the, the room where Ramana was giving his teachings briefly to, to honor the guru. And then they would be on their way. It really, it, it was like not from this earth. The amazing, and also how well organized this was. How is this possible in poor India for all these people to peacefully come to that place, organized, be fed somehow, and then two days later, everybody was gone again. It, yeah, Kathy and I were unbelievably touched by that. And it is also obvious that the presence of all that devotion is hanging in that area. So even when there is not a, a big festival going on like that one, something happens in the atmosphere of that. There is a, a stopping of the limited mind and an opening of the big mind. And then there seems to be no difference whatsoever between the big mind and the big heart. Therefore, the vision is, is not present at that moment. But yeah, I agree. There is no reason why those those two streams of devotion and and meditation and devotion in whatever form that is calling the people, why yeah. that should not be coming back today. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps maybe I should check with you because I'm I'm experiencing this more in, in our culture and in my own journey as well. That perhaps we are in an age of integration, at least in my own journey, and I'm I'm happy to be happy to be proven wrong at some point. But it looks like that the shamanic traditions or the let's say on the surface, what appears to be dualistic because you have the trees are alive and Mother Gaia is alive and we have this relationship. And earlier as you were speaking of the tribes, the shamanic tribes, that the shaman and the community honors that one person is out of harmony. Yes, yes. So, so that the, the, the shaman and the community have their duties and the duties is to responsible to bring this harmony back to harmony. It's not yeah. just one person. Yeah. The whole the whole group is responsible. And and so the elders have the function to point that out. The younger ones have the function to take that in and use their young force, as it were, to make sure that this happens, that it's organized in a way. And so the there is not really a hierarchy. It's more like a job division. And everybody has its place. And of course, in today's society, many people don't feel they have their rightful place. The older people often don't feel that because they're not honored, you're not productive. The young people feel they are not heard. 
And it's possible that the, the current generation, the, the new generation that's coming will be different because they don't have necessarily that racial bias. They, they are, at least what I see here in, in Belgium, and it depends on the region, because the region where Kathy and I live currently is very white. But then there is other places where it's so intermixed. And when I see the young kids, they're five or six or seven, and they walk through the streets and it's all mixed together. And there is no groupies in there, like a little black group or a little brown group and a white group or an Islamic. No, it's all together. So my hope is that at some point, this will be a thing of the past. All these projections of, I mean, about race and gender and, and certainly about skin color. I mean, come on, that this should still be an issue it is just crazy, really. And, and, and tragic, right, on that level? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, no, thank you for that offering. And, yeah, I feel like I'll, I'll perhaps to check with you that, that I feel like we are in, entering into an age of integration where all these traditions, at least the way I'm looking at it, is that it's not that this tradition is superior than this other tradition, which is, interestingly, as I was highlighting, this is an ideology that exists even in, let's say, there are spiritual elites of like, oh, this is the direct path and these are the inferior indirect path that's not necessary. And I feel like now as a culture, we're coming to a point where trauma is being recognized and traditions who are adept at hailing trauma are being recognized and also are starting to merge. As you said, is that shamanism itself is a non-dual tradition. When I heard the word non-dual here, in my own studies of like Sufism and Kashmir Shaivism and stuff, I was like, well, every tradition is non-dual. There isn't a spiritual tradition that's not non-dual. But anyways, yeah, it, it, would you agree that there is like, that there might possibly be an age of integration of different, different wisdom traditions? I, I think that's certainly my hope. And also I have seen, take the Dalai Lama, for instance, who has been so active to bring people of different faiths together, together and to have these dialogues. Thich Nhat Hanh, the same. Paramahansa Yogananda, when he came to the West and, and started teaching about Jesus in, from a kind of a yogic perspective. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, when the missionaries came to, say, North America, many of the tribes had no trouble at all as seeing him as a spiritual leader. For them, that was not an issue. They, they liked the guy. They immediately adopted them within their, I mean, in Hawaii, there's churches where it's all mixed together. So, yeah, I, I do think that that is maybe an aspect of what is called the Aquarian Age. More communication, more equality, more seeing that those differences are made up. I mean, Sri Aurobindo and the mother and I mean, and Ramana, of course. I remember that Ramana was the first one who, you know, where the women were sitting at one side, the men at the other side, and he sat in the middle. Yeah. And so that was in those days a breakthrough, right? But certainly anybody of any caste was totally welcome in, in, Ash, in Ramana's ashram and also the animals, which is still the case today. Right? The monkeys are running around there. The cows come in. And then he made this very revolutionary thing that he 
pronounced one of the cows, Lakshmi, when she, when she did her transition as enlightened. So that was such a blasphemy in those days. But in shamanism, that has been an insight for, for always that, that even when an animal was hunted, the animal was deeply respected. And so contact was made with the mind or the spirit of the animal asking who, who, who will offer themselves. And they would never slaughter just for the sake of slaughtering. That was a very wide concept, right? The, 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 I mean, the hunting of the buffalo is one of those unimaginable things, just as the Holocaust is unimaginable, right? From a more, a more evolved point of view, you, you think, what is this craziness about the human species that has these amazing works of art and amazing philosophers and, and, and then is so primal still in many ways? And that's, of course, where psychology comes in, where spirituality comes in, and where healing of trauma comes in. Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about the pain body, right? When, when, when we come onto the planet very soon as kids, I mean, I, I distinctly remember that growing up. I was born in, in 1950, so the, the war had been finished for five years, but people were still talking about it. Or, or not talking about it, which was kind of worse, because there, there was a sense of, of doom and of, of things that could not be spoken about. So the importance of, of healing the past, because of course it's a very fundamental, beautiful truth that the only thing that really exists is the now. I mean, that's a profound insight. Sure, sure. That being said, the past is always here as well. Certainly a trauma that has not been healed is, is in the room as an elephant, right? And, and it's possible to feel that with interactions with people, but also in, in groups. And, and uh, Kathy and I, we were twice on the, in the West Bank in, in Israel. It's, it's just unbelievable. The, the trauma is just thick it's thick with trauma so as long as trauma is not cleared harmony is not possible right and i think there are many many people today also because of internet who are exposed to the great teachings of the world i mean even i mean there's even videos of some of the teachers like raman there's still a bit of footage of that right but of the more recent teachers everything is available so I know that in, in Corona period, which, you know, is not totally finished, but the, the, the lockdown period is finished right now. But so many young people were watching all these teachers and teachings and also watching a lot of other stuff, obviously. But it's possible that later we will look back on this period. In previously, before this interview, you were talking about the great resignation, right? And, and I was saying, well, yeah, great resignation, often an insight that the life that was led up until that point wasn't really fulfilling enough, but there was no stopping. You just had to go, go on. If you didn't go on, there was no, no job waiting for you, right? So you had to go on. So now there was almost like 
a period where you could reflect, is this the life I want to lead? Or do I want to reorient myself to a job that is much more meaningful for me, even though it pays less? But, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to pay less. So I think that it's a fascinating period. This decade feels like, wow, and we don't know, right? Nobody knows where exactly this is going, but the potential for this decade is enormous. And also that the young people, of course, will be coming up, right? There will be some trauma for sure with younger people who went through Corona, but also I already feel, I don't know that many young people, but the ones that I do know, some of them feel very different. They're open. Yesterday I was in a a little family with a five-year-old, a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, and they didn't know me. But their parents had announced that there was a shaman coming. <laughs> but they were so curious and, and they stayed up for part of the night. They just wanted to be in the energy. They were not preoccupied with their devices or whatever. They were curious. And of course, the parents themselves are, are open people. But yeah, I I remain actually very, very hopeful. And part of it because of what you, you bring to the table. That in essence, all these spiritual traditions are non-dual. And once you have a bit of a non-dual insight, then you see that the other person is not different from you. Yeah, in form, sure, in skin color, but not different. I mean, everybody wants to be happy, right? Everybody is looking for love. Everybody is looking for healing. Every person who has been damaged in some way, even in a small way, is looking for that piece that still is ready and has the ability to be healed and then the life is is more full is is more whole yes yes yeah thank you two themes that i would love to kind of dive in which are very much connected is purpose Mm -hmm. and prophecy okay because what we've just been talking about purpose and just connecting it back to something that we were talking about is I was once speaking with a Sufi teacher and I told him about non-duality. This was quite a few years ago, pre-corona times. And I was, I was pretty much at that time, 100% Western non-duality. I feel like it has this Western mentality of like the transcend quick scheme. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just out of here. Everything else is an illusion. And I, 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 was, I think I had kind of signed up with that, which is interesting because my, my beginnings of sort of my spiritual path were through Shaman medicine work but anyways yeah he said to me something that i remember which was he said he said non-duality and then what so i think i'm i'm starting beginning to digest that i cannot fully fully articulate that but at at the cultural and civilizational level i think purpose is becoming very important this again in non-duality i feel like that's again something that if you question too much it seems like people might think that you've missed the mark like you are, you are it. And uh, that's the end of the story. Just be happy, have good meals if you can, at least till your town is not burning because of climate change. <laughs> I'm sure that's not everywhere the case, but I had to bifurcate my path a little bit and make purpose or purpose made itself important in my life to discover what is the purpose. And I think shamanism again is, is gifted with some tools to discovery of that purpose. And earlier we were talking about the vision quest and 
maybe we can go into it again. And yeah, if you, because I know you were part of a big ceremony, which I think is very important, where 350 men in Belgium underwent a collective vision. Yes, in a way that that's true, even though the, the project itself was limited to 15 young men and their either biological father or adoptive father or a, or a mentor. But it was set up in such a way that those 15 men were sent off by the whole group before they went into their vision quest. And the vision quest was partly, certainly for the younger ones, intended as a sort of rite of passage into the full potential of manhood. And just briefly, historically, in, in the U.S., Robert Bly was the first one in a big way who, through his workshops and also through his books, you know, the most important one of which was Iron John. And also maybe another figure whom you probably know is Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you're the hero's journey. Absolutely. Yeah. And th those interviews that I forget his name did with him just before he passed away, actually, and they were broadcast on, on PBS, they had a major, major influence culturally because Campbell was able to bring these different myths of all these cultures worldwide together and show that there was a certain pattern to it. And one of those patterns is the hero's journey, where you you get lost in the woods and all that, but you have to go on into the adventure and you have to meet your demons. And then eventually you you return. And then you return as somebody with wisdom to share. And if you don't share your wisdom, the, the journey is not completed, you know? And so in that sense, your reference to non-duality and then what? You cannot bypass the, the journey. Otherwise, it's not really authentic. You're just, yeah, you, I don't know. And, and I don't want to be too critical either because everybody somehow is on the path. Yeah. yeah. And I think the purpose is not to be, not to be critical to not be dismissive at the same time. I think that has to be highlighted because I feel like often, at least in, in that case, the absolute realization is used to dismiss the relative. And I think then that becomes exactly the word that you used, a bypass. And I was going to check in with you about this with you later, but I, I want to see now, because it, it seems relevant, that somehow it's paradoxical, right? That the great spirit, there's unity. And yet, maybe need is not the right word, but there's an expression of that one, right? Into the, into the many forms and this creation. And I think that is sacred, and that's what perhaps shamanism would say. And other, there is no need to dismiss that. Because as a matter of fact, it seems like the more we understand the absolute, we can embody more and more and know what is the right way or the most informed way to live our life in duality. So it, it's, a, it's a package deal, right? Paradoxically, it's not one does not negate the other. And the, and the mind wants to do that. The mind wants to categorize and say, okay, this is good and this is bad. And so I, I'm finding in my path diminishment of the need to resolve this paradox. I feel like you have to live the paradox and not, it's not this way or that way. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that very much so. And certainly it connects with shamanism in a certain way. And, and also with Sufism specifically, that there is a path. And even knowing that there is a path is already certainly a, a big start of awakening, knowing that. And that's where the vision quest comes in. It, it is a sort of a very explicit container to allow people the experience that something about that path, their specific path, will be revealed during the vision quest. And in my limited experience of that, almost everyone who takes that particular path in terms of vision quest, you know, they come out and are changed. The, the, the young man that I saw at the festival coming out on the last day after their last suf suffering. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate it. A sleepless night in the woods and they were, they were protected and supported and all that and honored. But then, then in the sweat lodge, the final sweat lodge sitting with 50 men, including their father, who at the end of the lodge washes them respectfully. I mean, what a tender thing for two males to do, especially father-son. So the healing that happens at that moment, not just for those sons and fathers, but for the other people in the lodge, and then when they come out and there is 200 men standing there, honoring them, respecting them, kneeling for them, to give him a, a sense of dignity. And of course, you know, these young men, obviously they are a bit shy or in error. They don't want to stand there. And then there is another part which has been healed of a trauma they were not even aware of. Not just their own trauma, but the trauma of the previous generations. I mean, how many of us can say that we were fully bond bonded with our father or, or mother for that matter? matter. I mean... Almost nobody, right? Even in enlightened households, there is still very often a major disconnect between the generations. And sometimes there is a grandfather or grandmother that takes that function of being an elder, a wise elder. But most most men, and actually I, I have to say also most women, have not been initiated in a proper way. And that's why we see these, these gang stuff and drug and a lot of drugs of course there is a, a deep deep longing to have an ecstatic experience of oneness which some people do have with drugs so I'm, I'm not totally putting that aside as a possible path but of course if it's an addiction then it's no longer a path and if 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 it's not done in a sacred way there is also yet another calamity in society right and, and I include, in a way, ayahuasca in that. I think ayahuasca has a great potential and for some people can provide a sudden insight in their purpose here. I mean, that happens to a fair amount of people. Depends a bit on the, the leader and, and the situation and all that. But then to make it into a new addiction, which, which happens for some people, is, is again, you know, oh no, oh no, oh no. 
I mean, we, we did that with LSD, right, in the 60s, which really was a big, big opening. But then also there were so many casualties. And then it was put into the, into the whole prison system. So that's crazy, right? Then you were put in prison for, for having taken LSD or something. I mean, so the culture is still, I think, in technical terms, extremely neurotic, right? It's a, it's a case of neurosis, widespread neurosis. And so that's, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so that, that's the dark side. But on, the, on the, the, the paradox is the one where we see that trauma, if it happened, contains potentially a huge gift for the rest of your life. If and when it is being healed. If it is being bypassed, then no matter which path you're taking, it's not going to deliver the goods of deep satisfaction and happiness and meaning of your life. Once you see that your suffering actually had, had some meaningful aspect to it, that you can guide other people because of your suffering, you have a deeper knowing, you have a deeper empathy, and, and you know this is not the right path. We, one should not inflict, inflict misery on other people. That's not what humanity should be about. So, so the more people have that as a deep insight, the better chances of having a better society. And I think maybe that's where I wanted to go a bit. If spirituality is devoid of some sort of social activism, it limits the interest of such a path because one does not exclude the other. It does not. That's just another dichotomy. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I think that our time is also necessitating that it's not a choice anymore. So yeah, before maybe I could play my musical instrument while the next town is on fire. Because in the worst case, it's an illusion. And in the not so worst case, it, it, it's not bothering me yet. But now I think we're, we're run out of that option, right? And at least the newer generation, as you were saying, I must say that I'm blown away by, as you were mentioning, this account of kids who are very curious to be in your energetic presence. I see more and more, and I'm just shocked that some of these kids are already coming ready into this world to do something. But at least with the awareness and kind of almost shamanic awareness that they have and openness. And maybe all of us were open. Maybe we're just entering into a, a new culture, a new paradigm where the uh, the parents are open so the kids also become very open but at the same time i think some some of these souls are coming in purposefully and maybe we can we can dive into that but one of the words that you used earlier was this festival right you said that where this initiation took place and i must say that maybe connecting it to the wider neurosis and psyche there are all over the place there are these festivals that are popping up and in the U.S., I think one of the classical festivals is the Burning Man, which I still haven't been to. Are you aware of this mm-hmm. festival? No, no, no. I, I well, know many people who have, but no, I've never been there. Yeah, me too, me too. But yeah, it's a complete, there are many festivals like that now. I actually been to a smaller version of that just a month ago. But purpose was a big theme of people didn't know what is the change that needs to come and what is their role in it. But the question was, I'm hungry for having clarity on what the purpose is and how can we create a world that we know is possible. Yes, yes, that's very important to to be willing to imagine that world. Because that is the the first step in manifestation really is imagining it. 
that's why I love that song, of course, from John Lennon's song about Imagine. So to dare to dream boldly, because sometimes it feels, and that's where that term resignation could also be connected with, that we kind of resigned that it's not going well with the world and that's just inevitable. No, no, it it has to be taken as a big wake-up call and it's entirely possible. And I agree that those festivals, I mean, the little that I know of it, but there is a spirit there, a, a collective gathering where the oneness, even in, in my hometown, there is a festival every year, except in Corona, it did not take place. And people actually come worldwide and it's just a festival where the whole city is open to musicians and anybody who wants to present something and some major artists come, but mostly it's a very joyful event. And I, I went there for the first time with my older brother and I hadn't been in my hometown for quite a while. Well, this was not the hometown I grew up in. It's an, an open town. You could see people of of all nationalities. It was obvious that gender was had a very broad spectrum in terms of how they were relating to each other. It was joyful. So there was a need for those experiences. Maybe the, the carnivals way back sometimes had that function, right? For for all the parts of society to come together, laugh at each other, have fun, get drunk. But the element of ecstasy. So yeah, I I, I think the the imagination part is very important. And that's I also have a this kind of sense that some of the young souls that are coming that are here, they're different. They they want to have a different world and they're gonna do it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and you mentioned the Aquarian age earlier, and I think well, I'm an Aquarius, so the Aquarian age is is connected with imagination. Oh, oh, okay, I didn't know. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah, and interestingly, we were talking about the sort of the etymologies or roots of the words like resignation. That in a way it can have a negative connotation, but if you really look at it, it's a resignation from what is not working. Right. Right. And in the right. same way, I believe festival comes from festivity, or which which is having fun. Having fun, and a lot of these festivals that are happening are actually counterculture. The arrangement of the festival is not the mainstream culture; it's something radically different. And may, maybe that ha- should th- there is a place for it in every civilization, so we don't enter a mode of stasis mm-hmm. and comfort, where it's like, oh, the machines will take care of us, and we don't need to do anything. So anyways, one more theme, because I know we've been going at this for a while, and since I have you here, I would like to take the opportunity, which is evolution, but maybe let's connect it to to prophecy, because earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned your teacher, and you were speaking about how he was, he had prophesied that you will see a return of shamanism, right? Mm -hmm. And this, it just also reminded me that when I was growing up as a kid, I grew up in a Judeo-Islamic part of India or former India. And we were given all these biblical tales of Noah's Ark and Moses. When Mo- Moses went and 
turned the whole empire, the pharaohs upside down. And that it was always very periods of turmoil before something new had taken birth. And when the pandemic started, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, those images started to come in my mind of the Noah's Ark and Moses. And I had enough of an intuition to know that these thoughts were not coming by accident. Because the last time they came when I was a kid. So somehow these images are myths, so to speak, were given to us for a reason that we will, we might be facing something like that. I, I'm just reflecting this to you in your own journey. Do you think, have you seen a theme like that or does that? No, 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 for sure. For sure. So I, I myself, I mean, like many people have been feeling for a long time. When is there the tipping point? When, when is the tipping point? But of course I could not have imagined it in this particular form, but when it happened, I had a strange burst of energy almost, you know, like, ah, okay, this is what we collectively have been preparing for. Okay. And I had all sorts of creative, I was for the first time doing Zoom sessions, podcasts. Yes, there was a, a bit of a strange, energetic, like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And, and I was not alone in that. I saw, of course, I experienced myself, the fear of getting the virus. And certainly when I was going shopping, like initially we didn't know exactly how it was transmitted. So either Kathy went to the shop or I went to the shop, but I was not scared on an existential level. On an existential level, it was like, finally, the wheel may turn now. It may turn. And... Of course, we all know some of the most, what shall I say, difficult aspects that there was almost immediately two groups of people who were against vaccination or for vaccination, and there was no middle ground, like almost none, and it became very extreme. But as you say, that those extreme positions also gave some clarity about, hey, we cannot be so extreme. That is not an option. I mean, of course, it's an option, but it's not a healthy option. We have to dialogue. We have to see what is the meaning of this, right? And so if if we take that particular lesson from it, that certainly will be a step in a good direction. But of course, we're not, we're not there, right? There will be more challenges to come. And each challenge, I believe, has the potential to be a gathering of insight from people who have been preparing themselves for a long time. Maybe all the people that have been infected a bit with this great notion of non-dualism, right? And then see, oh, and I play this particular part in this. I can contribute in this way. I have the knowledge or the wherewithal to do this. And then... It's totally imaginable, because I want to come back to that. It's good to imagine that, that later, like there was a renaissance at some point, what is historically called renaissance, that in this period, the wheel of Dharma, as it were, turns, and we are out of the darkness of some of what we, we see right now, and in an age that's much more harmonious, and where we use science for the benefit of all, and and not really to profit certain certain groups of people, 
Right. So that could be a prophecy to see that, okay, that's why all these things have happened. You know, why the six ceased to place, why indigenous leaders have come forward, where finally we see, hey, we have to talk about colonialism. I mean, recently the Pope in Canada, right? Said, you know, I mean, this was bad. This was wrong, right? After the big shock of discovering that these bodies were buried there, right? So these atrocious things are coming to the surface, but also a stance is made by some, by many. No, this is not the way. There is another way. Let's go there together. We can do it. It might not be easy, but we can do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And as you were speaking earlier, I was curious to know, as you were speaking, that these young men who went through these initiations of the vision quest, were, did they bring back any sharing? I don't know if there was a collective sharing of their visions that indicated perhaps to you like a call of our time. I, I don't know if this, this actually happened, but I'm, I'm just curious to put this question to you. If you Yeah, some, some of that has been happening and continues to happen. There are follow-up sessions and so on and so forth. I have not been totally privy to that. The only thing that I could feel when the festival so lasted for one more day where the younger men were part of all the other activities that were going on, and then after the final ritual, which was more like mantra singing, integrating all the energies that had taken place. So then there were the farewells, and most of of those younger men were trying to see me and some of the, the rest of the team, and they would say, "Can we keep connecting? Can we? How how can we take take part in? Do you do you teach shamanism or whatever?" And then. As often as the case, synchronicities take place, which I always find very interesting. There was one young man in particular that I felt might need some follow-up because he was quite interiorized. And I knew he was going through a deep process, but verbally there was almost no response happening. And so both me and some other people were a bit concerned about that. And synchronistically, I happened to take that person home. So we had a talk for about three hours in the car. And I must say, because of my hearing is a little bit, and because of his dialect accent, and he speaks mumbling, I couldn't get everything he was saying. But there was a strong, beautiful bonding that took place. And so at the end, I said, I have never been able to talk to anybody like this. And with my dad, I cannot talk like this. And so it was very heartfelt. So then, lo and behold, the next day, I am in a town fairly close by for some computer stuff that I needed to do. And there he is on his bike. He recognized me. I didn't. Stops. And again, we have this 20-minute conversation. And you know about these encounters, right? The the I mean, the statistical probability of meeting again the next day in another town, he's seeing me. I mean, right? And so this is part of, of what we can easily imagine, that more and more people are perceptive enough to stop and see, oh, okay, something purposeful is taking place here. Something of the divine in action is here. And not to claim it in any great thing, this happened to me. No, not like that. 
We're like, okay, we are not alone. We are being guided by life itself. It doesn't have to be become more mystical than that. Life itself is purposeful, or we wouldn't we wouldn't be here, right? Why are we here? For a certain purpose. Yes, yes. Yeah, very beautiful. I, I'm I'm glad that the word synchronicity came up because I know that this is also there's also a chapter on this on your book or or mm-hmm. a theme in in the book. And yeah, the way the way I'm it was a beautiful story that you shared and my own hope for my life is that all my decisions, everything in my life should happen. I yearn for that synchronicity because somehow I feel like it's deeply satisfying and you very correctly pointed out that it's about life has a purpose and somehow we're attuned. We want that purpose. And earlier as you were highlighting in British football and the gang violence and all that, in, in a sad way, that's all that outcome of our collective rejection of purpose and meaning. And well, the good thing is that we're coming back full circle. It seems like I'm very hopeful. And as you were saying, I, I part of the reason I started this this podcast, and at the same time, I keep meeting people on the podcast and on the streets where it's not even hidden. I mean, people are just are demanding that purpose that they need purpose. Absolutely, you talked about a yearning. It is a deep, deep yearning, and. Because I'm a bit older now, and maybe because I have been in the States for so long, I come back to my to the culture that I know so well. And so when I'm in the store on occasion, I will just strike up a little conversation because the Flemish culture is not necessarily that communicative initially. But when I take the initiative, then immediately people are very happy to respond. They're happy. But they will not start necessarily the the dialogue. And this is on a very small scale. But the yearning that you talk about, everybody really wants to connect. I mean, of course, of course. Why wouldn't it? And maybe kindness is also, the Dalai Lama often talks about kindness. It is not very difficult to be kind, really. It's just, it's a decision you make, right? When possible, yes. I'm going to be kind. And if something, of course, terrible happens, I'm, I'm going to not allow it to happen. But it's the sweetness of daily life. And I, and the few times I've been in India, I, I must say that that quality of connectedness, I felt much stronger there because there was always a kind of a longing afterwards when I came out of India, like back into the more separative cultures, but the U.S. certainly has become more and more lately, more disconnected connectedness. Europe seems to be like in the middle. There is still more, much more connection here, I feel, than in the U.S. But spiritually, that is the whole purpose, to connect with one's inner life, to connect with the whole, and to find the purpose. Because everybody, of course, of course, has something to offer, has gifts that are there, is here for, for a reason. Yes, not, not I mean, just... yeah, if the eight or seven billion of us now, if each one had a creative purpose that they perhaps get in touch with through a vision quest, I think we cannot even imagine the kind of world to be able to be living in. 
So I know we have been going on it for a long time. So first of all, thank you so much for being with me here. I could definitely keep going on, but there were perhaps there are two themes that maybe we can conclude on, which are which are interrelated. One is evolution, and perhaps we can go at it first. So th- this is it, it is connected with this purpose, right? Because if there was no evolution, there isn't a purpose. Purpose is somehow connected. I'm perhaps not the best person to articulate it. And recently, I have been as I've been yearning for, for that deeper purpose in the past few years in my spiritual journey, I've also been brought to several co- connecting synchronistically with several people who are vibrating with this. Certain elders, including yourself, and you mentioned to me, Pierre Tailhard, several weeks back, almost a month back, that you had come in contact at a very early point in your life and you're also familiar, deeply familiar, actually, with the work of Sri Aurobindo and the mother. That's something that I became recently aware with. Actually, one of my recent podcasts was with Debashish Benerjee, who I would say is a scholar in that work and takes retreats to Auroville and is a philosopher who's deeply, anyway, is tied to this, this kind of work. So going back to Pierre Taylor, I was really inspired to see that he, this was back in the 40s and he had coined 1940s, and you'd coined the word Lucifer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, which I was aware of the word, but I didn't know that he was the one behind it. And he was also a paleontologist and had background in evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of connecting that surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, him being a polymath to theology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the idea of the new sphere comes from, which is uh, maybe instead of me defining it, why don't you, you can share if how that inspired you because that I think that was a very early if I remember correctly very early on in your life that you you came across his work well yeah yeah it's it's interesting because I I didn't know really when I was 14 let's see 14 he he passed away in 1955 I'm pretty sure in 1955 and his works really were not published until after his death he was a very prolific author some pamphlets were were circulating amongst mostly amongst Catholics because he was a Jesuit and never left the church, even though the church was very strict with him and actually banished him. And here is some again when we come back to synchronicities. So the church banishes him as a paleontologist to China. And what happens there? He is one of a group of five who does the, maybe you don't remember this one, but he, they find Peking Man, which was a, a great discovery at the time because it proved part of that evolutionary biology. It's so crazy that he became part of that. The reason he was banished was that he did not believe in the notion of original sin. And at Rome, straight from Rome, from the Vatican, this was blasphemy for a Jesuit to... And he came, he was French. He lived in the Auvergne in, in France. But he taught quite a bit or, or gave, gave lectures in Belgium. And so when I was 14, I was invited to come to the Belgian coast because I had a friend in high school who whose father parents had an apartment there 
And there was a meeting going on, and I strangely felt so alive, and, and, and I couldn't explain it. And I always remember that. What was so special when I was there? Until I somehow figured out that those people were congregating there in that weekend to talk about the pub publications that had just come out in Dutch translation of Teilhard de Chardin. And so, yes, Teilhard de Chardin had this notion that humanity as it is, is not yet where it's supposed to be. So that there is an evolutionary curve and he called that the omega point, so that it is moving towards the omega point. And that Christianity, as we know it, is not fully evolved that. It's not the, completely evolved yet. It still has to reincarnate itself, which again was blasphemy. But he was putting his views as a scientist where he could see, obviously, that Earth has not been created 4,000 years ago, all that stuff. That was still kind of dogma at the time. So the noosphere he saw, and we, we touched on that today, I think, as those ideas that are floating around on the planet and every new insight, every new idea that is going towards manifesting the next stage in evolution, you could say imagining, imagining, of course, why why would why would the animals evolve why would nature change why would humanity not evolve so that was his big his big work and strangely or not so strangely that the established christianity would be so opposed to it and by now of course 60 70 years later he is accepted within christian theology as an important thinker. Now they claim him as one of their own, right? As is always the case. But also kind of proves the point that there is an evolution going on, which is unstoppable. You cannot stop ideas once they're floating around. Even that, let's just not go there maybe, but even if the biosphere becomes unlivable, right? Eventually it will reestablish itself. It may take a long time. But the ideas itself cannot be banished from the newosphere. They're there. They're accessible. And so podcasts like this are part of that. You, you disseminate certain ideas, and if those ideas are aligned, say, with cosmic truth, with the laws of the cosmos, then it's only a matter of linear time be before they fully manifest. And if, if we have the time for like one more synchronicity, Teilhard de Chardin was also banished from France to New York City. Almost nobody knew him at the end of his life. He's living there in a Jesuit community. He walks almost every day through Central Park. One day, a young girl of 14 bumps against him. And he says, in, with a French accent, young girl, be a bit careful. I'm an older man, and they strike up a conversation. They become regular friends to, in today's age, unthinkable, right? An older guy who goes with a young girl in Central Park has regular walks and talks. He finds a person 
who is open to his ideas and is curious, she asks him questions. Then he passes away on Easter Day, also synchronistic, right? Very few people come to his funeral. Today, millions of people are aware of Teilhard de Chardin. That young girl later sees a picture of him in a bookstore and recognizes this is Teilhard de Chardin. This person is Jean Houston. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she has been Jean Houston. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Have you? Yeah, because she, she is big in the whole world of evolutionary thinking, right? She, okay. she, yeah, I'm very familiar with the name, but I didn't. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, okay. I mean, you can't make up these stories, right? You just can't make them up. Yeah, it cannot be an accident for sure. It's not an accident. And, and, and you cannot stop. I mean, Théa de Chalet is not easy to read. It's not, not an easy read. But his biography is fascinating. And also his trauma, going back, maybe come full circle in our dialogue. His trauma was the atrocities he saw as a stretch bearer in the First World War. At the same time, during those activities, he also had a very deep vision of, you could say, the Christ. Not necessarily of Jesus, but of the Christ energy. And the whole world was bathing in this divine Christ life, which he never forgot. And so out of the trauma and his deep need to help humanity, he tried to integrate what to him was scientific truth with his lived experience. And even though the church was not kind to him, he felt he had to stay within the church because that was still the best vessel that was available at the time. Because he also, like my teacher and so many of the teacher, recognized he was just, his purpose was to work for the future. So he didn't, he didn't feel like a victim, even though he did not like how he was being treated, of course. Who would? Yes, yes. I mean, so fascinating. Thank you for bringing these various anecdotes in there because it makes it so much more richer. And both about your teacher and... Thank you for also correcting my pronunciation of oh, no, no. Uh, I just called him something totally different. So I'm glad I know now. No, no, no. He, it, the thing is, his full name is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. But most people refer to him as Teilhard because it's such a long word. Right. Yeah. No, no, it's not. You, you, good to know. Good to know. But actually, it's interesting when you were highlighting your teacher's journey and also here with, as he was a stretcher bearer in World War One, I, I believe, right? Yes. And, and those cosmic experiences, which happen at these subtle frequency levels, so to speak, how they then unfold into the, gro into the gross world. And that, again, just kind of connecting back to our current civilization, where everything has to be a linear process and everything has to be seen to, has to be, has to be gross. And the subtle is, is not even present. Whereas these kind of things are actually showing us that even the transformation we're seeing now begin through the work of, you know, the, the ancient shamans and the elders and people like your teacher and Thierry. So did you also, can you connect that if you will, if you like very briefly, or you can go in detail with Sri Aurobindo's work, how did that come about? And it seems connected with Thierry de Chardin's work. I, I, I agree. I agree. And they, so they were 
developing these ideas at the same time. I would say maybe the limitation, if it's a limitation, because it was inevitable, Teilhard put everything in a Christian terminology. Right. And of course, Aurobindo, in his own history, I mean, he speaks about the presence of Krishna and also, what is that student of Ramakrishna? I forget his Vivek. name. Yeah, Vivekananda. Yeah. So he had psychic connection with Vivekananda, who talked to him, and an energetic connection with Krishna when he was in the prison. He was imprisoned by the British for revolutionary activities. And so Krishna comes to him and says, start your yoga, you will be okay. And strangely enough, even though he was considered the most dangerous rebel of all of India, he was acquitted after this trial that was followed actually all over the world by the, by the newspapers. So Aurobindo, his big work was around trying to get the next energetic stage where human consciousness was possible to reach onto the earth plane. And so he dedicated his yoga to that, documented it in a very precise way. And probably the scholar you were talking about knows much more about that than I do. But interesting that these stages of his yogic development were documented. Then at some point he gets joined by the mother, who was a French woman or born in France, but from Turkish father and an Egyptian mother. And so she was like the Shakti. Mm -hmm. And she was able, if we believe the way that is documented, and I, I happen to believe it in a sense, these are dialogues she had with one of her disciples, Satpram, and are, are all published, that when Robindo passed away in 1950, she took all of that as her next step in her yoga to allow a transformation of the cells in the body. It sounds like science fiction, but at the same time, this is so methodical, so almost scientifically enterprised, where she was trying to go into the depth of the unconsciousness of the human species and bring it to the surface by working the disciples that were at that point part of the ashram. And so she knew intimately the psyche of the disciples, the spiritual psyche or entity or whatever you want to call it, but also the traumas they still were troubled with and certainly their conditionings. And so she gave her whole life to work individually with everyone who was there, thinking that they represented almost like a mini lab of all of humanity. And by working on them, she was working. And of course, this there is always a possibility for an outsider to think, well, this is hocus pocus. But when you take the time to really study that, and also there are still people alive, not so many. Mother died in 1973. When Kathy and I were there, we had the opportunity to speak with a woman from Africa, I forget which country, who was taking care of her physical body at the end. And she, she, she saw that our little group was very interested. And, and, and so she said it was unbelievable, but it was even manifesting on a physical level. 
there was a transformation going on. And then mother was very old. She was 95 when she died. But these things are so absolutely interesting. And of course, there are famous people who were who were influenced by the work of Ken Wilber, uh, Michael Murphy, even Stockhausen, the musician. But it's still the case that science in general is not really interested in that. Mostly, if you're a scientist and you start studying this, the scientific community will have a disregard for you. Because it's too woo-woo. Whereas Aurobindo goes back to a very old tradition. His Savitri, his, his big poem, is, is amazing. It's there. The Matri Mandir, the, the temple of the mother, is there for anybody to go visit. So there are many, many breakthroughs. And as, as you say, this has been prepared for a long time by the shamans, by the seers, the old seers of the Upanishads, and also in modern history by a lot of giants that have been here, and by the current teachers, and also by normal people. I mean, normal people like you and I, right? Doing our best to share the ideas we have, our interests. And then by the big research. And I think trauma may be a bit of a hype, but it's also so well-researched now. And so many people are having breakthroughs by having the courage to go into their own personal trauma and trying to come to terms with it and learn from it. So to me, those are very, very hopeful signs, you know? Yes, yes, yeah. Thank you. That was that was so rich, and it it reminded me of what you were saying about the mother's transformation. Maybe not directly, but in Tiar de Chardin's, when I was reading his biography just on Wikipedia, I noticed that. I mean, of course, in the church, he was considered a heretic because of some of his ideas, but also even it was surprising that in his time he had been influenced by, of course, Darwinian evolution because he was a paleontologist. But he also talked about Lamarck in theology, which is, mm-hmm. it seems like you already know about him, but... No, Lamarck, no, not, not so much, actually. That's why I'm interested. Okay, I know yeah. the name, but I don't know the connection. Well, so it's interesting because it kind of connects with the trans- kind of transformation you were talking about, because Lamarck was a kind of contemporary of Darwin, but he had a little bit of a different take on, let's say, evolution. Because in evolution, well, first of all, there is kind of a randomness, right, through which the changes are happening. It kind of lacks a purpose. And then secondly, also that your immediate ancestors don't really have an impact on your, let's say, genetics, so to speak. It's, it takes millions. It's on a scale, a very larger scale of time. Your grandpa, great-grandfather, mother don't have. But in Lamarck, Lamarck thing, your ancestors have an impact. Mm-hmm. It can have a huge impact. And now, actually, in our contemporary times, yes. uh, even though Lamarck has made a resurgence, even though his name is not that often used, but the word they use is epigenetics, for example. Yes. which is events that could happen with your grandparents, let's say a famine or a Holocaust and how that can manifest two, three generations down the road and connecting it back to trauma. Even in the scientific arena, it's becoming obvious that these things will have to be addressed, right? I mean, psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, contemporary people, they, they know this stuff. So I was, anyways, I was surprised that he was a real visionary in the sense that from the little that I know that he took Darwinian evolution in his scientific study, but as he was building his theological models, the new sphere and such, he, that was more Lamarckian, yes. which at that point in time in the scientific arena would probably be heresy. Yes. 
because that idea was completely buried under the ground and has only recently emerged. So yeah, that's, that's incredible. I just wanted to, I was curious about one little thing and you could make it very brief if you like, or you could share more. You spoke a little bit about, or you mentioned about your NDE that influenced you when you were very young. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know a little bit about it because I recently shared my own NDE experience. I wrote, wrote about it a little bit after quite a few years after it had happened which is connected with this idea of purpose that I felt like that the integration of that experience really pushed me to decide in a way what my purpose is, creatively just make that decision. Yes. So I, I'm just curious what had happened or how that informed your life. Yes, yes. Thank you for that question because now that I'm back, back in Belgium, somehow it seems part of that whole circle. Briefly, what happened is that if the doctor, the house doctor had not come when he did and had not insisted to come back, I, I wouldn't be sitting here as, as a body mind. But strangely for me, so I was, I had just turned four. There was a knowing during the event, which lasted, I think about a day and a half. There was a knowing that I was not dying actually. So it was kind of a strange near-death experience. It was a near-death experience for the grown-ups, very concerned about my life. And I do remember being touched by that, having the feeling, wow, such a, so much effort to, to, to do all this for me. I, but the knowing was there. I'm, 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 I, I will be, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. I, I'm fine. And that knowing, when, when now I think of it, that was the, the same knowing that I would term my knowing today about life or, or, or time and, and such. But I did have a series of recurring nightmares after the event, which I don't think I, I wrote about in the book. And the nightmares were the following. For some reason, my purpose here was to figure out what came before time began. So in the dream, I was trying to figure that out, figure that out. And then it felt like I was coming closer to maybe the answer, but then the answer was also like terrifying and I would shout. And then my dad would come from his bedroom with my mom. I was sleeping with my two brothers. I was in the middle. He would take me to the bathroom and he would use a sponge, a, a, a washing, washcloth, and, and say, Frank, Frank, what's the matter? And I would ask him, what comes before time? And he would say, these are not good questions. Go to sleep. And I would go to sleep. But you know, so today we didn't really go into that much. But it's so interesting, I think, that... I think I had a little glimpse that I don't remember in that sort of dangerous period for the body. But that glimpse, the young boy, of course, could not deal with. Consciousness was able to deal with it. Awareness, the non-dual part was no problem, right? No problem. Nothing is, nothing is happening. But for the little boy, afterwards, I was not the same as the other little boys. And I felt I could not share 
that really with anybody. I knew I, I better, there was a knowing I can't. And it came out in nightmares. So there must have been a traumatic part to it that I don't remember. But the nightmares, I, I think, were a releasing of that. And then after a certain time, the nightmares disappeared. But then later, around 21, when I started meditating and experiencing at certain times in the meditation, the timeless was in a way the answer to that that question, right? What comes before the time? Well, nothing comes before the time, but the timeless always is, something like that, right? If you put words into it. So in that sense, I'm very grateful, of, and always have been. I'm very grateful for that incident in my early, early life that set me apart, which sometimes I think was a bit lonely because I had an intense search for an elder in my, yeah, it took a while before I, I found my first mentor. I think I was maybe, I don't know, 22, 23 or something. But yeah, deep gratitude that I was gifted by existence. And it, it strangely connects. I hadn't really thought this through with this whole dialogue we had about trauma. That you know, it was a, a big gift. Very big gift. And of course, I got lucky. The body, I mean, lucky in the sense the body-mind was meant to stay here. And it, it, I have a, a good body-mind. It's basically healthy and connected and all that. So I am I'm very grateful for that. Yes, no, thank you, for, thank you for sharing. And I'm just curious to know if you, do you think that you had an interface with this Time with the timelessness that made you ask that question. <laughs> do you, could you describe? I mean, if possible, what is, do you think you, as a child, you came in, in contact with that triggered that deep question at the age of four? That what what comes before time? Well, just because you asked that question, I, a connection is made for me now. I don't know if it's interesting necessarily, but I'm going to share it anyway. I do remember when I was about eight, that I had secret discussions, dialogues, actually. You, you could say Socratic dialogues with my younger brother, who was then five. This was a big secret. In, a, in Where I grew up, it was safe to go out. There was a, in those days. You, so we would disappear for a walk together. And, and we would ask each other these, these kind of questions. Not sure if we talked about time, but certainly about the meaning of life. And this was so energizing for me that when I came home, often in the night I couldn't sleep because of the amount of energy. And I, it's the strangest thing because I was just seeing my younger brother for the first time since I'm here for four days. Kathy and I went to visit him and his wife. And I always forget to ask him, do you remember these, these times? Because for me... They were filled with wonder and, and energy. And of course, I have no idea how we did it. I have no idea. But now that you asked that question, I think it was a continuation of that nightmare, but no longer in a, in a scary way. I think I walked through that fear, maybe, maybe, through those couple of months of that recurrent nightmare. And then as I was growing up, and then I'm eight, 
I'm more mature and my my thinking is more developed as as a boy, I was able to but my younger brother also, who had not gone through the experience, he he loved these walks together. Maybe because it was our secret. Yeah, interesting question. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, it just reminded me of a similar friendship I had while I was a teenager where it was a lot about these questions. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, I'm very grateful to that that friendship because that was it was just Socratic dialogue for hours. So, Frank, maybe before we end, I would like to ask you about your book, which I think maybe the audience should check out. I just looking at the titles, I think we covered a lot of some of the, the topics in there. And if you if you could remind me, because I, I forgot I wrote down the title, but if you could just tell us maybe briefly so they can check it out. See if I can remember. Uh, yeah, unity, unity, unity in all that is, enlightened warriorship under the guidance of thirteen masters. Yeah, I found it. You nailed it. Yes, that's okay, it. Okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> so it, it's more than a memoir, right? It's more than your encounter with these masters, because I, I feel like you also bring in a lot of the lessons and meditations that you have been, have been receiving since the beginning. Yes, yes. So at some point, mostly because many of my friends and, and students were saying, Frank, you should write the book. And I, I had no idea. I mean, writing a book. And I didn't want it to be about me because then you have the story and all that. But then I I went in Belgium to a a short workshop for wannabe writers. And that's where a structure came down. Oh, I I could select 13 people that have been influential and use that as a framework and share something that may be may be instructive to the reader. And of course, talk a bit about my life here and there and, and tell some stories. And so, and, and also honor my shamanic teacher. And, and so I don't know which edition you have. There is a, a colored edition and a black and white edition. And the colored edition is, is beautiful, but it's, it's kind of was expensive. It is expensive. For, it's almost 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. And the, and the black and white edition, the same text, but black and white. But I'm very happy I did it because one of the things we were talking about today happened for me is this synthesis. And seeing that these different teachers come from different angles, I have absorbed a lot from every single one of them. Some I didn't, I didn't know personally like Jesus, but others like Trump. And, and Yoshka, of course, and Osho, and Mother Mira, and, and, and Eckhart Tolle, and, and Alma briefly, and Grotowski, who was a big influence on me. Yeah, again, I count my blessings in the presence of a physical teacher, but also of, of teachers that are no longer on the planet. The same thing can happen. For me, a lot of activation has happened actually through reading like the works of Arabino and the mother, and then going, of course, to to, to Sarunachala. It feels like transmission after transmission after transmission, and then finding a way to to write a book about it, including, yes, some of the, the, the guidance, the meditations that I receive. It's been a nice, not just a nice, it's been a very creative thing for me to do. I, I loved it, and it was not always easy, 
And then the publishing part was fraught with with challenges, which I guess is normal. But I'm happy it's it's available. Yeah, I, Amazon carries it. Yes. Yeah, and it's also, I think, I believe it's also in the ebook ebook format. Yes, yes, it's in an ebook form. That's right. And it's in also there is a audio. So I'm I'm reading it. Oh, and right. that was so beautiful to do this with a friend. He had never done it. I had never done it. So I I don't know how. Yeah, it's available in it. So I speak it. I read it. And that was yeah, that was a lovely, lovely adventure to do. Perfect. Yeah, we'll definitely put it down in the show notes and. So before we end, Frank, is there any anything that you think we missed or you like to share? Well, you're right. We could go on and maybe maybe we'll, we'll do another one, right? Yes. Because it's fun. I really enjoy being in in your presence. I do, and I I had forgotten uh, your ethnic background, and I, when you tell me that as a kid you you had a friend like that, when I was young. I had a deep yearning to, to, I wanted to be born in India. And I write in the book, I, it's, there was a time that all of a sudden, just a small perception, you know, but I felt that, oh, I I was born after Ramana was here and just after Aurobindo left. So, so from early on, there was this longing to be in a culture where spirit is central. And I experienced that uh, more recently in Bhutan, where I was for a short time, where shamanism, for instance, is Bhutan, that's everybody knows shamanism. It's on equal footing with, yeah, we didn't talk about all that. It's on an equal footing with Buddhism and Padmasambhava came from India into Bhutan and Nepal and Tibet and cleansed also some of the negative aspects of shamanism yes. and, and fused it with the high aspects of Buddhism. And that is still available there in Bhutan in the temples. It's just transmission looking at the tankas and a country where, where happiness is valued as a national thing and not, not just a slogan, but, but anyway, yeah. So, so no canal has been, it's been so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think at the, in the middle of the podcast, I actually felt what I could say at the, at the moment is like a, like a shamanic presence. Mm-hmm. I, and, and, and I know that you and I have shared some retreats together mm-hmm. and I was so happy when during some of those retreats, you did like your drum performance and that shamanic element, my soul was just joyful because as I said, my own kind of path was triggered by that. So Mm-hmm. To see it in the non-dual circles, just I was like, wow, give a voice to that, mm-hmm. that inner, inner shaman, so to speak. So thank, thank you so much. Joe, you too. We were, we were meant to meet. Yes, yes. And maybe we'll, at some point, we'll, we'll come back again. Is there a way if the audience, if the listeners wanted to reach out to you? Sure, they can. If you put in my name or Living Light Center. Okay. They, I think you can find. Yeah, I'm open to where possible to to have contact with people who are interested. Okay. For sure. For perfect. Sure. Perfect. Okay. Sounds good, Frank. Well, I know it's pretty late at your end, so thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. It was so lovely. I I, I wouldn't yeah. have imagined that we'll have such a deep and rich rich conversation spontaneously. Exactly. Exactly. I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Kanan. Thank you so much. 
Until we meet again.